We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Different fantasy formats and what insights do we take from them over to our core areas, our our specialty contests that we like to play. That's the topic this week on Stealing Bananas. I'm Ben Gretsch. You can find me on Twitter at Yards Per Gretsch. With me, as always, is Sean Siegel, who you can find on Twitter tweeting sometime in 2017 last. Sean, how you doing? Excellent, excellent. 2017. A good year, but not as good as 2021. And part of that has been uh, doing these first handful of episodes with you. And then the listener response has really blown us away. We're very appreciative of everyone. With the things they've been saying about the show, the feedback we've gotten, the ideas for topics that we can do. And that's given us the idea. Uh, We've mentioned several times how you can help us by leaving a rating and review for the show. Uh, We're going to try and give a little bit back to at least one listener of the show. So we're going to have a contest. The first 50 people to leave ratings and reviews, one person within that group, if you also retweet one of the episodes and then let us know uh, somewhere or another within social media, you can let Ben know, tag him. Colin Kelly is our executive producer of the Road of His Radio channel. He's Overtime Ireland. Uh, you can also tag the Road of His Radio account. Let us know what you would like to hear. Suggest a topic for us. Now, we know there'll be a lot of great topics. We have things lined up for a while here. We won't necessarily do it immediately, but whoever's topic we choose for a future episode of the show will get a six-month subscription to Rotoviz. And so if you're already a subscriber, we'll add those months on. If you're a new listener, potential subscriber, you can obviously get that very important time period now as we go into draft season, as we go into the actual NFL season. So I think an exciting note there. But but basically, we're very thankful about how the first couple of weeks are gone, have gone. We're excited about the future. And Ben, we've got a great topic today. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, just make sure to uh, rate, review, retweet. You can either throw your suggestion in a quote tweet or in a reply to either me or Calm. And yeah, we'll, we'll pick a winner here shortly. Somebody, as Sean said, that is within the first 50 reviews on the on the podcast. Yeah, and so the topic today, we're going to be talking about different fantasy formats. You know, for us, our core area is more or less seasonal redraft. 
you know, managed leagues, but there are a lot of really interesting things from best ball that, that we can take. And then from studying best ball that we can take and apply, there are a ton of things from dynasty that I know, Sean, you, I mean, you've done so much work in the dynasty realm over the years uh, that we can take and apply. We have a great guest with a DFS background that we're going to be talking with on the third show this week and, and learn some things from there that we can apply to some of these other areas. So there's just a ton of different ways. And then also probably we'll be talking a little bit about different scoring systems and things like that and, and how that changes the equation and, and how we approach different leagues in those ways. So all of those things can provide really useful insights. It's going to be a really fun week of, of shows. Sean, I think we should probably start a dynasty. That's something that, like I said, you've been very big on. I know it's started to inform in the last few years of your content, more of a focus on on youth in redraft. You know, maybe that was always the case. I know you've always been someone who's who's chased breakouts, even going all the way back to your to your huge win, the the, the Josh Gordon breakout, and who was it? Was it Alshon Jeffrey also that year? I think that you were hitting on some of these guys in their their first breakout seasons, but sort of the value that rookies can provide even now in, in redraft. And one of, one of the interesting first topics we want to talk about is sort of dynasty rookie draft preparation and, and how it can give you a leg up in redraft. And, and you noted some, some ways that could be the case. What, what are your thoughts there? Yeah. You mentioned Josh Gordon, Alshon Jeffrey, uh, those teams that were lucky enough to finish one, two in the 2013 NFSC primetime. Also Le'Veon Bell, as the the rookie breakout there and i think that one of the things that strikes me as i look at my dynasty preparation and the dynasty teams that i try and build is that a lot of it comes back to those very early years playing redraft and that 20 that 2008 to 2014 15 time period where the teams are basically all zero rb and the advantage there is just so gigantic you've got to figure out a way to play zero running back that allows you to win with it, right? I mean, you can't just throw the guys out there and say, okay, well, I've, I've kind of drafted in this fashion and maybe it'll work. You've got to figure out how to make it work. And part of that is that you're going to have to have some exposure to breakout running backs because if you're not drafting any of them early, you still need running back points. And then I think one of the things that people tend to miss and, and certainly miss more now, perhaps, because there's this idea that you can wait on wide receiver, is that within a zero running back build, you want a lot of wide receivers. And that doesn't just mean a top guy. So those elite teams, they have those four or five superstar wide receivers, but you also need the hammers coming later. So you need your Josh Gordon, you need your Alshon Jeffrey. When you add them in to the guys early, then you now have this roster of wide receivers that essentially can't be beaten, right? I mean, maybe you're defeated by a team that has someone go off like an Alvin Kamara uh, in the very crucial week, but, but you're gapping the field with this type of construction. But in order to do that, you have to be able to find those guys. And so one of the things that we focused on a lot at the very birth of Rotoviz is to figure out in an evidence-based fashion, what types of profiles really translate to the nfl you know what are the type of guys who are going to come in and perform right away and then ben also this idea of if a guy doesn't perform as a rookie who are those best second year buys and and we know now there's a lot more emphasis in 2021 than there was 10 years ago on second year players 
But there really are a couple of things going on here. One is, you know, which second year wide receivers are we willing to spend a lot on? And then which second year players, both at running back and wide receiver, are we willing to buy low? The thing that I see a lot is that these players are treated all the same based on their rookie season and based to an extent on their, their draft spot. And we do know that those are two huge elements in terms of how you project a player for year two. But the other element that also comes into play is how good they were as a college player. And Ben, we know that there are some different profiles that are a lot more successful coming out of college. Yeah, absolutely. And you were talking about the difference sort of between buy lows and buy highs. And I think that's, you know, that that's a really interesting takeaway from Dynasty. I haven't I've been doing Dynasty maybe for five or six years now, not not as long as a lot of people in the industry, but I suppose longer than others. And, and one of the things that I, I've certainly learned is that when when guys are good as rookies or good early, you want to you want to acquire them, but everyone wants to acquire them and they certainly become more expensive, but that there's still room to grow from that. Right. And, and that has played out in several different ways over the, the last several years. Um, you know, an example that immediately comes to mind is Juju Smith-Schuster after his rookie season got very expensive. And then he had the absolutely monster second season. I mean, I think he was like a fourth round pick and redraft after his rookie season. And people were saying, look, you know, his rookie season was great, but he's playing alongside Antonio Brown. What is the upside really? And the upside was a 1,400-yard season. He was an absolute monster. Uh, obviously, you know, the last couple of years, pe people hear that name now, and they're probably a little bit more disappointed because they haven't lived up to our expectations. But year two uh, was monstrous. And so there, there are a lot of those types of guys. And, and as we were talking about Josh Gordon and Alshon Jeffrey, I, I couldn't help but think of, you know, obviously some of the more uh, contemporary names like, like Justin Jefferson. Last year is a great example of somebody that, you know, regardless of whether you had running backs or receivers early, adding him and, and his explosion in the later rounds, in, in the middle rounds, mid-late rounds, uh, was just a, a huge hammer for rosters. So um, there, there's just so many applicable points to what you said. It, just so much of what you talked about, I, I wanted to, to get into these like player-specific takes. We'll talk more about that in, in the second show as well. But when you talk about the actual profiles. I mean, you're the one who has done just an incredible amount of research on this, did so much in the early years at, at Rotoviz, along with guys like John Moore and, and Matthew Friedman and, and many others. Obviously, you know, the, the the great fantasy douche. And then and then lately you've done a lot of work on identifying post rookie season breakouts. You know, what do year two breakouts look like? What are year three, year four, year five breakouts? And some of the stuff that you've found has just been super invaluable to me, frankly. Uh, like one of the big points with wide receivers is how the the higher the draft capital, essentially, the earlier the players tend to break out. And we're going to get more information because teams are going to give those guys opportunity early. And, and so if they get opportunity and they fail early also, there's something to be said there. It's probably a good time to get out. Whereas later round picks are probably going to need a little bit of time to, to make steps and, and then are more likely to be third or fourth uh, year breakout. So that's one really, really interesting sort of profile note as we start to look at breakouts. What are some others that you see may, maybe at running back, which obviously, you know, zero RB is, is the, the thing and people struggle is the thing is the thing that, that you're known for is, is the, um, 
Well, yeah, it's the thing. It's just the thing in the fantasy industry. It's the thing everyone's always talking about. You hit on an, 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 an amazing point when you when you brought it up that you have to know how to do it correctly because there are people who just try it. It doesn't work. And and I, I see their teams, and I'm not the, the expert. I've tried it for several years and done it for several years, but not the expert you are, certainly. But I see their teams and say, well, the reason is you didn't do this correctly. You know, you took the wrong type of running backs. You 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 didn't press your advantage at wide receiver. You jumped out of that way too early. And in the sixth round, you decided you were going to go after a dead zone running back who projected for volume because you were so excited that, hey, look at the value I can get at running back here in the sixth round. And that's the worst time to take a running back. And that's not how you employ zero RB. That's probably the worst thing you can do when you're trying to go zero RB is not press that wide receiver advantage, make this, this huge diversion at running back. So what are the profiles at running back that can help you make these intelligent zero RB teams. We know that we're looking for players with standout characteristics, right? And so one of the things that is always surprising is just how little the NFL sometimes values production. You see someone right now, like a Jermar Jefferson, who, yeah, I mean, there are some athletic issues to his profile. Maybe it doesn't translate to the NFL that well. But, you know, all we have to do is look at someone like Miles Gaskin, who maybe the red flags there athletically weren't quite as large, but someone who was sort of pushed to the scrap heap and now is a very viable type of player. You look at players who maybe have the production and the athleticism. So you look at someone like a Philip Lindsay, who wasn't drafted despite being a very good college player and has blazing speed, right? So I'm looking at production, I'm looking at athleticism, and I'm trying to find the things that are not expensive. Right. So one of the things that we hear about a lot are broken tackles, yards after contact. Blair's been working on a wrong read sort of with this for a long time. I think it will finally come out uh, this year at some point. But one of the things that, you know, if you go and look through the numbers is that yards after contact do have some predictive element for themselves, but they're not necessarily helping you a ton with fantasy and they're very expensive. Whereas if you're focusing simply on the production that the players have. Maybe you're looking for players who are a little bit smaller, who catch a few more passes, who have speed, but don't have the size, right? And so we're looking at things that are inexpensive as we're going through. You're looking for, say, a Chris Johnson or a Jamal Charles type of player, simply because those guys don't cost quite as much and have this amazing upside. But the other thing that we want is to look at players who perhaps had unrealistic expectations coming in and yet again the production was there and the high value touches were there and if you can get one of these bigger backs who has again production maybe catches some passes and has become inexpensive then he would be that second year guy so the name that comes to mind and we'll have a lot of guys in the second show but zach moss right would be an obvious type of player now he doesn't have that standout athleticism and people paid for him last year as though he was an established player who had that but at the same time He's a bigger back. He's going to have some high value touches. He can catch the ball. And he was a productive college player. And so we want to look at guys who maybe they didn't meet unrealistic expectations in year one, but now in year two, you can get them. And it doesn't mean every one of these guys will break out, but you need to have exposure to these types of players. And I think that's one of the areas in which dynasty and redraft can help you in both directions, where we know now that having this, emphasis in and the familiarity with player profiles and what translates to the NFL for a rookie draft. If you're going to dominate your rookie draft, if you're going to be in position, you have the background to dominate your rookie draft, then 
you have so many things you can do in a redraft environment that people who didn't have that background can't do. And that that's both looking at these rookies and how we should play them, but also those second year players where again, it's buy low, buy high. You've got to be ready to do both. If you don't have that dynasty background, you're going to make mistakes trying to make those decisions. Yeah. And the biggest way that I would describe this, and, and again, having learned some of this, maybe a lot of this from you, um, you know, early on in my, in my years doing content at, at Rotoviz working with you and, and then, you know, managing teams with you and seeing some of it in practice, I, I it, it certainly influenced my approach over the last several years. The, the way that I described it in my Stealing Signals newsletter during the year last year was this concept of the long view. And it's something that probably best described as the way that I would sum up your approach, having played, you know, co-managed teams with you and played with you and seen your player recommendations at various points um, throughout seasons and in drafts for, you know, we've done, the, we, we've done leagues together for four or five years now. And whether it's buy low, buy high, all those types of things, that is very relative to what the market is right now in, in the redraft community. Uh, and, and we talked a lot last week or a couple of weeks ago about sort of how projections drive a lot of that. It's it's very fairly fickle how um, that that quote from that article I wrote that I mentioned that a, a few of the listeners thought was was pretty hilarious. That story about uh, how the the lessons that that people take from the prior year are quite often wrong. Essentially. Um, there's usually always a bias to just that past year. So redraft ADP is not necessarily going to be, it, it matters obviously, but it's not necessarily going to be our, our best barometer. And when we think about ways that dynasty, for example, is helpful in, in a, you know, applying to, to somewhere like redraft. One of the biggest ways that that has been the case for me is <clears throat> there's guys in dynasty that even though their value has dropped, I don't want to sell. Because I think they still have, you know, for whatever reason, their value has dropped. But I think that, that there are there's context that matters and they still have the potential to be very good. You know, some of the early players in my dynasty career that that panned out or, or you know, I maybe wasn't on enough, um, but it, it managed to pan out for those players. Uh, you know, I've referenced Tyler Boyd and, and Devontae Adams in this regard a couple of times. They were both very bad their first two years. They're both players that I know you were sort of quietly on those off seasons going into the third years when they were completely free. I, we were playing in dynasty leagues together. I remember you trying to trade for Tyler Boyd and, and you know, I was this, you know, relatively new dynasty player and was like, you still think Tyler Boyd's good enough to trade for? I'm not trading him to you, Sean. Sorry. Like that, that was sort of my response at the time. And those guys had the profile and the, and the production background. And the long view was that these guys can still be good. And they're so cheap now that, they make for easy buys and and their ascension if they do hit could be massive they have that long-term potential and they have they they have shown what they what they had had shown in college that they had that the ability to be very productive at the nfl level so it's this long view where you know i i get asked a couple guys that i was sort of really high on last year uh, and i was you know do, still doing uh content and, and and at cbs and all all through the draft season last year so had kind of a bigger platform and was really pushing for AJ Brown and pushing for Stefan Diggs. And now I've had a lot of people asking me this offseason, who's my Stefan Diggs this year? Who's my AJ Brown this, this year? And first of all, it's like, well, you know, sometimes you just get lucky and you hit on, you know, good, good player takes and, and things are fortunate to break your way. 
if anyone is telling you that, you know, just because they hit on some guys in the past that they have this year's that version of that, that then they're probably not someone to listen to is sort of my opinion. Like, I'm not going to tell you who this year's AJ Brown or Stephon Diggs is because there's probably not going to be one. And it was, yeah, like I said, very fortunate that I, that I was pretty successful in some of my player takes when I had this in a year where I had a, a you know, a large platform, it was kind of nice, but I, I don't necessarily have someone that I'm saying is this year, Stefan Diggs, I can guarantee you is going to be amazing. Or this year's AJ Brown. But the reason I was on those players specifically goes back to a lot of our conversations or players that I know you like very, very much. They had the profiles coming out of college. They had, and then, you know, for me writing, stealing signals and being very into sort of the way that their early careers had played out they both had very strong cases for their situations have not benefited them yet. And I think in the long view, these guys can be way more productive than they've been. And and for Diggs, you know, that had a lot to do with him being productive at various depths. And we've talked about this different times for Brown. It was uh, that the regression was probably being overstated because he was so good in so many different ways. And there was also going to be some team level, you know, passing regression expected and all these other things. And I think he's going to continue to be efficient probably throughout his career. People are less concerned about the efficiency surprisingly now, but both of those guys, it's like, they're, they're going to be good. And if this is the year that is the best season of their career, I want exposure to them. And I think that's a really important lesson from, you know, from dynasty, I was not trading those guys. And, and then you, you take it over to redraft and you say, well, if I think this guy's going to have a year where I'm not willing to trade him in dynasty, I think he's going to have a year in the next, whatever, three years, say some, some, some length of time that could be the type of year that I definitely want him on my team. And I don't want to have traded him away in dynasty. Why can't it be this year? You know, there's often assumptions being made in the redraft community. Like there were a lot of assumptions why it couldn't be this last year for Diggs and for Brown is sort of the point. And, you know, you could, could have boiled down my take just to that. These guys are very good. And why can't it be this year? And there wasn't really good reasons why it couldn't have been last year. And then we, we saw that last year was, you know, a phenomenal year for both of them, but sort of that long view and that player skill and that, and that player value take that, that we talked about way back in week one, you know, so much of that comes from the dynasty and the, and the player, um, our, our opinions on the players. Exactly. And you mentioned this idea of why can't it be this season? And that goes sort of both directions, right? Where anybody who's played a lot of dynasty and knows sort of how running backs are valued and knows what happens to running backs in terms of holding their value, I think that it's difficult to go into redraft and not have concerns about the prices that you're paying, right? Because we look at, okay, well, when is this guy going to fall off? We're trying to get rid of him in dynasty at the same time, drafting him in redraft. There's a little bit of a disconnect there because that fall has to happen in a specific season. And one of the things that we find, and one of the reasons that the running back collapse rates are so high and win rates are so low is that it does happen in a season. And unfortunately that season is often now. Uh, One of the interesting things I asked Blair Andrews uh, to, to look up for me last season, we were kind of going through some of these elements was this idea of just how different is dynasty and redraft ADP in terms of what it tells us about redraft. And one of the things that he found, uh, which I'll be interested to see what he finds kind of looking at again, because every year we just have some big movements with ADP and how it works and then player injuries. But dynasty ADP was as accurate for projecting running backs as redraft ADP was for projecting them in redraft, right? So 
the takeaway there for me, and again, as someone who is behind the idea of zero running back, it's probably not going to be surprising to listeners what my takeaway is. But if we're looking at who we want exposure to, we want to be getting exposure to players who could be rising and players who are less expensive, as opposed to players who could be declining and players who are more expensive. Right. So when we're putting teams together and we're trying to figure out what types of profiles we want exposure to, Dynasty can really help us understand the types of guys we want. And one of the ways I think that we know that works is we can do things like look at best ball results, win rates, uh, styles of build that are successful and say, okay, well, yeah, we're seeing those conclusions play out. And then we'll talk more about best ball and what it can help us learn about other formats and what we can take from them to best ball after the break. Hey, Rotoviz Radio listener. This is Curtis Patrick from the Dynasty Command Center podcast, and I've got a special deal for you today. Go to rotoviz.com, click the subscribe button, put the 12 month subscription in your cart, and use promo code RVRADIO2021. That's RVRADIO2021, and you're going to save 10%. Taking advantage of this deal, getting your hands on what's included in the package is the best way to enhance your performance this year. So go to rotoviz.com and subscribe now. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. So then before we get into best ball and all of the amazing conclusions that 
and just insights that we can draw out of that. I wanted to, to run one more thing by you about Dynasty because I think that Dynasty is a lot of fun and you do have this big question, right, about win now versus win later and the championship window. And there are a lot of just fantastic Dynasty players and Dynasty experts who really will sort of throw away this first season and then go on to dominate for you know five, 10 years because taking the somewhat slow approach worked. My question for you kind of is, how much of a conflict really is this? I, I hear people all the time, they're like, well, how do you decide who to trade? And if you're constantly trading people who are kind of peak value, which we always think about as these are the, the win now players, you know, how do you ever get a championship window, right? But for me, because I started playing redraft with zero running back and having the need to go very young to make that work, I would always kind of end up with these teams that I would look at. These are redraft teams that are younger than what you might consider a rebuilding dynasty team. So the idea that dynasty teams had to be in a window as opposed to perpetually young didn't necessarily make sense to me because that, that's how my redraft teams look. Is, is there an issue with my redraft teams? Is, is there an issue with my dynasty teams? How does this age element and expanding the championship window, how can some of these things work together or am I exaggerating the value of the young players and, and how that works? It's really in both formats. Obviously, you're not you're not exaggerating. Uh, the, the results sort of speak for themselves. The first thing I'll say, I've played at leagues with you. Your team's consistently uh, produce in these ways, but um, you know, especially the, the dynasty teams, when you get super young, it's like, well, we, the rest of us should just quit for the next five years. We're screwed. And probably forever. You're going to just dominate the league. But um, I, no, I, I think it's, it's very, it's very clearly the case that, that what you said is accurate. It, we know that NFL seasons are chaotic. We know that um, turnover is massive. All you have to do is go back and look at the, the fantasy scoring leaderboards from three seasons ago at any point. This has been true as long as I've done content. It's something I've done a couple different times throughout my career. I haven't. I don't know if I've done it yet this offseason. I, I think I was doing it last offseason. Just go back and look at like who the top five and ten players were at running back and at wide receiver at every position. And it's, you know, right right now, three years ago, it was Melvin Gordon. It was, you know, Todd Gurley. I don't know if a couple years before that probably was still was Le'Veon Bell, David Johnson. At receiver, too, you still had, you know, like Des Bryant not, not too long ago, Demarius Thomas. I remember when those guys were all the top names and, and then they were gone within a couple of years. There's, there's turnover. It's a sport that uh, is very difficult to be consistently amazing for, for a very long time. That is like a super – that's the unicorn. And even when players are that, uh, like Larry Fitzgerald is that, he had a period where he wasn't very productive because his team had, went through this very big lull and, and he had some down seasons and then he had sort of a rebirth. It's like this, I, I think naturally we want to believe that we just picked a great player, he's doing great. And so we want to hold on to him in Dynasty forever and he's going to be that player forever. And that is, it's just so much more the exception that, that a player has a career where every year he is near the peak of, of his abilities. Um, it just doesn't happen in the NFL. And it especially doesn't happen at running back to your point uh, about, you know, this could be the year that, that the player falls off. I mean, the way that I sort of have always summed that up is just to say, you know, don't pay for past production at running back period. Like that, it, that can explain to me 
a couple rounds of ADP with basically any player who in the past has had top five upside, they'll go a couple rounds higher than they should after they've already clearly started their decline phase because people will say, well, do you remember when Le'Veon Bell was the number one overall player? Well, now he plays for the Jets. You know, now he plays for the Chiefs. He's not that player. He can't be that player. The running back is uh, a position that is so much more dependent. I, I mean, this is not to take anything away from Le'Veon Bell, but it is very dependent on situation. And it's, you know, it's got to be a combination of, of, of multiple things. You know, same thing with Todd Gurley. Do you, you know, even after he had, had started to decline. But remember how good Todd Gurley was. David Johnson, I chased it for years. Uh, so it, it is so easy to see where guys who had elite seasons in the past become overvalued basically for the rest of their careers until they're undraftable because we're, we, and I say we, and, and it kind of not me, but like the, the entire fantasy community is, is saying I've seen it before from him and they do it at, at uh, wide receiver two in the Scott fishbowl. Recently, I took, DJ Moore over Allen Robinson, Amari Cooper, and Mike Evans. And I I thought about all three of those guys, and all three of those guys are very good. And I very nearly pulled the trigger on all three of those guys. And all of them have had seasons, uh, actually, I guess with the exception of Cooper, but the other two have had, Robinson and Evans have had seasons over 300 PPR points per game, which I believe put them both in the top five in those respective years. Cooper's had some 250-point seasons or, or at least close. Um, and so it's hard to say that those guys don't have the ceiling. At the same time, they've had several other seasons in their careers where they were more the low-end wide receiver one, high-end wide receiver two types, which is still very good. I, I'm, you know, I, I would still take you know, those receivers in drafts, and, and they're still a much better pick than a lot of the running backs in those ranges. But the reason I took DJ Moore was in my mind, I think I can make a pretty good case that DJ Moore is a better chance to be a top five wide receiver this season. Do those other players have 300 point upside? That's the case I was making essentially is that they maybe do, but it's a, it's a, just because me thinking probabilistically, I say that that, that about maybe everybody, we, we don't know much, but that it's a, a smaller percentage chance than we think it is because and particularly, I think the pushback would immediately be, well, they've already done it. How can you say they don't have it? How, Mike Evans has already done it. Alan Robinson has already done it. How can you say they don't have it? Uh, and Robinson maybe is is the best, you know, you can make a pretty good case for. If Justin Fields is a phenomenal, he would actually get to play with a good quarterback for the first time. Maybe maybe he can this year. But I don't think there's situations right now going into 2021 and what we've seen in more of a long view of what they've done over several years, looking at their targets per route run and and some of these ancillary stats year after year, we've got enough information on them that I think they're very good receivers, but they're not probably 300-point fantasy receivers at this point, which seems weird to say because they've already done it before, particularly for Robinson and Evans. But more, when you look at his numbers early in his career, has been nothing but efficient. His yards per run have risen every year. His targets per run have room to continue to go up if he's as good as I think he is. And his, his college profile also indicates that. So we have this long view of this guy has never been anything but good, very efficient in all three years. There's all the pieces where if the situation breaks right and all those things, he can be the next superstar wide receiver still. And people are kind of sick of him, but just because he hasn't done it yet, doesn't mean he has less of a chance of of being able to do it right now as we go into 2021. And so I'm kind of hemming and hawing about the other receivers. I don't have a great answer for you on that, whether or not they could do it. I think there's a small chance they could. And I, and I, I'm not, it's not so much not liking them, 
It's just that I, I think I can make a pretty strong case DJ Moore has a better chance. One of the things that I find, and we talked about a little bit this topic with the projections, but when I'm looking at two players or I'm looking at the style of player that I want in a particular area of the draft, I'm almost always looking for players about whom I know less as opposed to more, or that I think there is a wider range as opposed to a smaller range. You mentioned more, and we still really don't know about him other than he was a very good college player, which I think can be overlooked because people are now saying, okay, well, you know, he's had these solid NFL years. That's what he is. I do still like the fact that he was very good in college. These seasons he's had, again, at a very young age, right? And so we're establishing this baseline for a very young player as opposed to a player who comes in and is already... One of the things that's kind of interesting is you look at the fourth and fifth year players who are being drafted in that same range, there's a pretty massive age difference between some of the different guys going in in similar spots. And so the young guys to me are much more intriguing because we both, because they have a much better age adjusted trajectory there, right? Getting back to kind of the dynasty redraft overlap, the players that you mentioned you wouldn't want would be players that were selling in Dynasty, or maybe it's already too late to sell them in Dynasty. Are you drafting players in redraft who you would be selling in Dynasty, or maybe even sold in Dynasty a year ago? Yeah, that's a really tricky question. Um, I think the answer for me the last couple of years has been a pretty a pretty hard no. I, I I do think we're shifting a little bit, and this is something we talked about. Uh, I guess in week two, when we're talking about sort of the, the broader landscape and the way things are moving, that that some of the youth, you know, the youth and redraft specifically revolution, it, it's both been very evident and, and people are picking up on, on what people like yourself have been preaching to a degree that like Jamar Chase has an incredibly high ADP, higher than Higgins or Boyd. And I, I'm not necessarily saying I, I certainly wouldn't be selling Higgins, and I don't, I'm not necessarily saying I would be selling Boyd, but it you know I I I do like Boyd in redraft, right? The, the Jalen Waddle is going very high. I don't, I don't have a lot. You know, Kyle Pitts is going incredibly high. There's there's a few examples where I think there is plenty of respect being shown as we sort of move forward on a longer timeline across years. To, to the youth upside, or at least a little bit more respect being shown. And I, I think it creates some propositions where there are players that I wouldn't want to have in Dynasty, but I wouldn't mind making a cheaper bet on in redraft. The equation used to be simpler, where those guys were always overpriced and the rookies were underpriced. And if they were sort of similar bets, it was just so easy to, to take the cheaper option. But yeah, the equation is is changing a little bit. But, but broadly, I think... I think the answer is more or less no. I mean, I, I'm very much erring on the other side. I'm erring on picking players that might break out for the first time because that's where the value proposition is to, to everything you just said. Is that, I mean, is that sort of your approach as well? I kind of want to hear your answer to that question too. Yeah, so knowing the range that players can go in is in many ways just as hard or harder than, than having a good median projection for a player. So we know that there are, are issues with that as well. But these young players who have multiple good seasons and have some dynamics within the team where they could still do more. I mean, we, you know, people get tired of us talking about digs very quickly, but 
he was someone who was dominant in college, came in, was good right away, and continued to lay the ground right. And it took us longer than we when we wanted. He wasn't Antonio Brown as soon as we expected. But the fact that there were so many good peripherals along the way seemed to put him in a position where that upside scenario was there. I think that same thing is true for DJ Moore. Now, you make a good point that Dynasty has so much influence now on redraft that we do get some dangerous kind of situation. You can say with someone like a Chase or a Pitts in terms of this first season, the range of outcomes is so wide. And yet people are very much betting on the upside element of it to where I don't know that that'll necessarily not work, but we want to try and find players where there's not as much of a danger zone with it, where we can have that upside and we're not paying for just the top outcome. And one of the reasons that you can take DJ Moore very comfortably in the range that you take him is that even if you're not right, you're not going to lose on the pick. This was a, th- th- that was something that I w- w- wanted to say when I was debating sort of the Allen Robinson and Mark Cooper, Mike Evans thing. I, I I was kind of speaking less to you, who I think is more like-minded on this point, certainly, than to people where, like, what I would presume the pushback would be. The pushback would uh, essentially boil down to those guys in most scenarios would probably have a better season than DJ Moore. And I don't think I would necessarily disagree with that, but the difference is not going to change my season. It might be 15 or 20 points over the course of the year where, you know, Allen Robinson's had 250 target seasons. He's probably going to get a ton of targets again this year. Amari Cooper's in an amazing offense. He's going to get a ton of targets, but there are so many other options there. I, and his targets per out run and these things where like, I don't know that the ceiling is really there for him to have this ma- massive year. And, and Evans is more similar to Amari. Those guys probably in, in most simulations of the season outscore more, but more to me is that sort of asymmetrical bet the other way where the, the ceiling is uncapped and the floor is still exactly what you said it's not going to cost me anything at that price. He might be around like as, as far as like value. And this is a, a way that I, I genuinely hate to, to uh, analyze players, whether, you know, what, what type of value he returned on the season, he might be around too low from where I picked him in terms of the value he returns in a bad scenario. But I, I fully expect he's going to be good in the opportunity he gets, and he's going to get enough opportunity that he's not going to sink my roster, which is what, you know, you were just saying. So really the only question I care about, because the, the 15 or 20 point difference in a lot of scenarios where these, you know, maybe more established Allen Robinson types are going to are gonna get more targets, the, the, the little difference where they're a little better than DJ Moore doesn't affect me. It doesn't affect my season. It, it's not that big of a deal in the long run. What is the big deal is that potential for the super high ceiling that I was talking about. And that is a small difference. And that's why I was really, you know, picking my words carefully, but I'm basically saying J.J. Moore maybe has a 5% chance of being a top five receiver, and those other guys have a 2% chance. But that's that's what matters. That's why I made the pick, right? <laughs> so I think that having that dynasty background with it, especially if your dynasty background is playing a lot of leagues and is preparing for those rookie drafts in a deep way, as opposed to saying, okay, well, I'm going to take the guys basically at draft slot you're not going to necessarily go wrong in a way that cripples your dynasty teams if you take a simpler approach. But if you have a deeper approach to it, then I think you're better positioned to take advantage of these redraft values as they come up through the years going forward. You have more information in terms of the players who are more likely to beat draft slot and the players who more likely are to be a risk at draft slot. We know that the draft slot really creates an anchor in terms of early 
career scoring because it dictates opportunity so much. But what we're looking for is not to just rely on that, but to look and create exposure to the players who even once their draft-related opportunity goes down, that their talent-related opportunity sticks as opposed to players you would have had to get in and out of quickly. Getting in and out of them quickly in Dynasty is the same sort of element for redraft where you need to know what types of players to have exposure to at the rounds that they're going in in those drafts because a lot of times players that seem very similar are really not quite. Ben, let's take this into best ball a little bit. Best ball has gotten to be so huge this season, and I think that people are finally digging into it to the point where they know a lot more about it now, and then they can actually take some of these insights into their other formats. Now, the main thing people are seeing is that wide receiver heavy builds are overwhelmingly successful, and I think that's a surprise for a lot of fantasy participants because there's no waiver wire element to them. Is that the biggest takeaway that we would have from best ball and, or how should we use that when we're trying to put together our redraft draft, for example? Yeah, I think that that might be the biggest. Um, You've had some, some really good best ball pieces over the last few years as well, but that, that have highlighted several other ones. I think there are, there are other important things as well. You know the value of uh, of high end tight ends and 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 things like that are are also something that I think best ball has really um, shown. But I yeah, I remember a time a few years ago when best ball was sort of more in its infancy and, and MFL tens were big and the talking point about zero RB then because zero RB is always a talking point. But the, the talking point then the generally uh, accepted opinion was. Zero RB is fine in managed leagues where you have a waiver wire, but it doesn't work in best ball. Everyone believed that. I mean, there, I, I remember a lot of people that were sort of attacking people on Twitter and saying, you're an idiot if you think zero RB works in best ball. What are you doing? And now I think there's a lot more <laughs> acceptance of that, whether whether it's full zero RB or a modified zero RB where you're taking one anchor running back or – what have you, uh, you know, even that approach has, has become one where people are far more willing to take their RB2 in the rounds that start to stylistically and, and, and the way that you're building your team very much resemble the, the approach in zero, zero RB, obviously. And I, I think, yeah, that, that is like the, even a few years ago, people in, in best ball, the, the general best ball consensus, I, I would argue, was that you could not wait until the double digit rounds for your second running back. You could not wait until even, you know, round eight, you had to have a couple early running backs in best ball, of course, in best ball. And so what you just described is now essentially the industry standard and not just, not just zero RB. I mean, it's not entirely the industry standard. There's a very large focus on, on sort of the hyper fragile, fragile builds that, that Mike Beers introduced at at Rotoviz several years ago, you know, three or four, running backs very early, typically three, and then getting off of it uh, and only drafting three running backs. And somewhat stylistically similar, but a little bit obviously different because you're, you're putting a lot of a lot of capital into running back. But people are taking that now and they're saying, well, maybe I don't have to take, I can do a hyper-fragile. I can do very few running backs on my roster, but I don't have to take them all early. I can take one early and I can take a couple late. And then if I get the smash James Robinson player this year, I'm I've basically done the same thing anyway, but there's this acceptance of the running back dead zone. There's this acceptance that you're not getting as much ceiling in those middle rounds. 
And that has really, really changed drafts. Um, it, it has to be the biggest, the biggest change. When we look at that for redraft, and we consider the fact that you can also now go through and pick out some guys. I know that Blair and I attempted an extreme zero RB build in our FFPC main event last year. Our first running back we selected in round 11. We missed on James Robinson in terms of the waiver wire. And then we kind of struggled throughout the season to get uh, really any running back play, but definitely the running back to play until we finally were like, okay, well, we, we will go ahead and play JD McKissick, even though it feels uh, a little bit like capitulation. And, you know, then he carries us to the title and, and all of those kinds of things because of the wide receiver firepower. Do you see it playing out that way to where if we think it's strong in best ball, it's even stronger in redraft? Or is the fact that in best in redraft, those running back heavy owners who can also replace their running backs who get hurt, which we know they're going to, that it balances out and it's more of a wash or in redraft does perhaps this idea of taking a couple of running backs early still work, give you more of an advantage because of the managed roster? You have a, you have a knack for asking questions that I want, I want to know your answer on. Uh, <laughs> I think, and probably some of our listeners agree. I, I, I think the, the redraft, it, it's better. Like what we've learned from best ball absolutely means that, that it, it is better in redraft because you can get James Robinson. You don't have to identify him on draft day. You can get Miles Gaskin as the other one uh, who was great all year. Or you can get JD McKissick who you weren't drafting on draft day and you can wind up playing him. I mean, I, the fact that it's still good at best ball just goes to, to not so much to the value of late round running backs because we aren't necessarily, I mean, obviously late round running backs can be very great, but there are undrafted running backs in fantasy drafts who, who can be very great. It's sort of the point. And it's not necessarily that we're better at identifying later in the draft where the upside at running back lies. We can be, there's, there's things we can do, but it's more just the way that I understand that the best ball trends is more just the risk involved in taking the early running back. So to the second part of your question about taking multiple running backs in the beginning of the draft, it's a, it's a huge challenge. It's a huge challenge to get there. You have to be right. If you take four or three running backs in a, in a managed league, especially in best ball, you're sort of accepting that you're going to have a bust. Um, but because you don't take any more running backs, the rest of the draft, there's, it, it's a very, you know, specific and strict structure that can work. But if you do it in, in managed leagues, you are giving up so much uh, with those picks that are going to be bust. There's like, there's a reason that even when Christian McCaffrey is an absolute monster, his win rate is still below 50% because people don't understand structurally how to build around that. That, that, that is not an argument against Christian McCaffrey, but if, if he was as good as he was two years ago, and I don't know what his win rate was, but I think it was like high 30%, like the very best win rates we see, usually 35, 37%, right? That means that almost two thirds of the time, even the very best player in fantasy is not going to win you your league. It means that in your other 17 picks, you have to be able to build a team around him. And so what I think people take from these massive win rates from running backs in these you know legendary seasons as Pat Crane put it out on NBC, our buddy Pat Crane, is that you, a great article, by the way, go check that out, is that you have to 
you have to find that running back. It's so important. So now I'm going to take four picks in the first four rounds. I'm going to take running backs because I need to find that running back. But what you're doing is even if you hit that player, you have so dramatically reduced your potential to win. You're now part of the 60% of people that don't win with, with Christian McCaffrey or, or whoever the, the amazing running back is that year because you've essentially baked in some huge negative players onto your roster. So when you make that decision to go running back early, you you have to just basically decide that that's, that's the gamble you're making more or less. Like he has to be that player. Because the risk otherwise is that you've lost points. Whether even if they're okay, you've lost points to the to the receivers, the tight ends you could have picked, and and the bust rates are so high that you're probably going to lose points there, uh, or massive points. You're going to lose your league there if you if you hit on a couple busts in the first four rounds because you took four running backs. You probably locked in two busts too, and and that's the whole issue is you can't start stacking. That that's the 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 uh, the takeaway for fantasy owners from. All, you know, all throughout history has been running backs are so valuable, I have to take a ton of them. And that is the exact wrong way to really look at what the data we have is now. It's, they are that valuable. You can take them. But taking more of them is why, like I said, the best win rates are not even going to approach 50%. That's, that's how you lose. Ensure that you lose even if you hit one. So if you're going to take that risk and seek that guy, you, you still have to build around it. And you can only take one chance in, in one roster or, or maybe two. But you still have to build around it. And we've got some really good numbers and, and player discussion on early running backs for the second show. I completely agree with, with all of that, Ben. I think the other element that people can tend to miss on a little bit in terms of the difference between the managed leagues and the best ball leagues is having is how having that wide receiver firepower when you're going to have the optimized lineup allows you to crush the not only the wide receiver spots, but the flex spots to an even greater level. If you have the six top 15 wide receivers, which I talk about a lot for zero running back in a managed league each week, you're going to be playing four in a best ball league. When you get to put those guys together and take out the best scores, you know, you just score so many points. And I have people come to me all the time and say, well, look, Sean, I mean, wide receiver is pretty deep. Now you can wait, you can take those wide receivers later. And because of the optimization, you're going to get a lot of points. And like, it, it really, it seems like it would be that way, but it's the exact opposite where even if wide receiver is deep, you only have a limited number of picks within that range, right? I mean, you're not like trading back and getting extra picks in that range where wide receiver is deep. You have to start taking them and you have to have exposure to these guys who score a lot of points because they are the high scoring player and you do have to win the flex and the best ball allows you to do that even in a more dynamic fashion than redraft. But in redraft, I mean, that, that's the whole key as well, right? You have to have your lineup built around these high scoring players and where you may not get the optimization value, you do get the value of being able to make mistakes, being able to weather injuries in a way that you don't if you baked a lot of that bust into your team, as you just talked about. The tight ends, we know that they're a dominant force. We also know it's tricky to play and that it really does, uh, even the information we have about it, it depends on just a handful of guys, right? If Travis Kelsey were to be someone who had the injury background of Rob Gronkowski, if he'd had some of those seasons in the past, we'd be looking at it and saying, you know, make sure you don't take a tight end early. If he has problems going forward or Darren Waller can't hold on um, to his amazing story with Derek Carr as the QB, if the 49ers are more run heavy, if they're extremely run heavy this season, and then they're splitting targets between three very good guys, 
you know, can we be saying a year from now, okay, well, we know that those top tight end scorers matter. And I took, what we were discussing before the show, I took Travis Kelsey ahead of Patrick Mahomes in the Scott Fishbowl because his gap to like the tight end four is, is double, right? And so, I mean, you're talking about having an entire extra position but in some of the same ways that we talk about, okay, well, you don't know how these top running backs are going to perform because of injuries. We do know that tight ends, because we're just talking about a handful of guys as opposed to you know, the, the much larger numbers that we're looking at for running back and wide receiver, that so much depends on just how good those top guys really are and if they can continue to do it. Now, one of the things we do know is, is that a lot of those guys now have a good track record and so we, we feel more comfortable, whether or not we should, of continuing to go that route. I'm looking for tight ends early in all formats. Uh, Dynasty, for example, again, if you have one of those top guys, then your team almost essentially has an extra starter. How much of that should we be doing? And is it a, a best ball phenomenon? Or are you taking that everywhere? No, I, I'm the same way. I'm looking for them in, in every format. Kelsey's been an interesting one, though. That uh, maybe you know, maybe we should say for the player player specific show, but uh, I'm not going to do that because well, who cares about rules? Um, <laughs> a couple of years ago, he was very good, but I had a team that needed to rebuild, and I traded him in Dynasty in part because he was already approaching 30 or at 30. He's going to be 32 here in a couple of, of months. Obviously, like he's been so good the last couple of years that I. Maybe, maybe. well, no, I won't say that I wish I didn't because I traded him for Calvin Ridley and, and O.J. Howard. I was doing a, a, a two-for-one that I thought had a, you know the upside to be better, and Calvin Ridley's amazing. So, um, you know, I, I don't think it was that horrible of a thing for, for a rebuild. It would have been cool if O.J. Howard was also good. But um, Kelsey is interesting in that earlier discussion about guys that were trading in, in Dynasty. I think when you when you look at him going into the age 32 season, I, I don't think he's going to – slow down this year he was he's been so much better even the last couple years than he was earlier in his career he seems to only be getting better but why couldn't it be this year you know it could be i kind of is he going to continue to be this good at 34 at 35 like i kind of think it has to be in the next three to four years right where we see kelsey sort of fall off to your point and uh, to your point about like gronkowski and 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 when it was gronkowski and jimmy graham and they were going in the first rounds of drafts there was a year that I know Jimmy Graham was a first-round pick, and he was fantastic. And then the next year, I think he was also a first-round pick and was very bad, and or maybe got hurt. And, and Gronkowski got hurt several times. And there was a, a period where, where the the takeaway was you don't take tight ends early because there there are late-round tight ends that are productive. The Delaney Walkers and those types were coming out of nowhere and having great years back then. And we've still seen that. We we've still seen that with you know last year Logan Thomas and, and Robert Tunyon were top five tight ends out of basically nowhere you know, not drafted in most leagues, but tight end can, can sort of just be, be, you know, a, a player can kind of be carried by role and situation to a, a top five season. They're not going to have the massive upside that we've seen from these other tight ends. But to your point, if, if for some reason, these three big names fall back, then there's that question of, and say Kyle Pitts doesn't take a step forward. TJ Hawkinson doesn't take a step forward because that, that could happen too. There's that question of, well, then, you know, was it worth paying for an early tight end? I do think about that, um, and I totally agree with your point. I think it's a really good warning that what we've seen these last couple of years is very dependent on just a couple of guys. It's a very, very good warning, but I'm still kind of making the bet on these early tight ends. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's tricky. 
But but Kelsey was interesting to me in the sense that I I identified a couple years ago that I wanted to trade out of him for a rebuilding team to get younger in Dynasty and his age is getting up there to the point where you know continuing to bank on him in a, as a first round pick as a heavy part of a portfolio and redraft is something I'm both doing and questioning. That's an excellent point, and I think one of the things that we learn through these trades, both in redraft and dynasty, you have to be willing to make a mistake if you want to have a consistent championship contender. Now, in your situation, you get back Calvin Ridley, that's not even a mistake, right? But it's very possible to have gone away from some of these guys a little bit early and regret it. But overall, you've got to be willing to stick to your guns, make your player evaluation work, and make your overall structural approach work in a way that you're willing to take some risks or you're going to be that guy sitting there with the players you no longer want too late. And then the rebuild in earnest starts in a way that now it's going to take some time and your championship window is going to be way down the road. Ben, that's going to do it for us today on this episode of Stealing Bananas. Thank you for listening. I'm Sean Siegel with me as always is Ben Gretchen. You can follow at Yards Per Gretch. We'll have more episodes this week. Subscribe to our feed to get them when they release. Uh, Please drop us a rating and review on your favorite podcast app. And until we chat with you again, keep dominating those fantasy drafts. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m., and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com